This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Oro Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, and Silver Lake, and somewhere in Western Los Angeles. Oro was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission, to create a treatment that helps alcoholics and addicts using connection and compassion rather than control. They have... Many, many, many decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI, and they make sure that your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is so important when you're kicking horrible drugs like heroin and crack and meth and fentanyl, whatever. Holy God. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. The uh, sound bath meditation, equine therapy, surfing, the potentially spiritual transformative sweat lodge. It's all there. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Soberlink. As we all know, addiction is a serious issue that needs to be addressed. Nearly 15 million people in the U.S. have an alcohol use disorder, and that's alcohol only, not other drugs. Only 10% of those people get treatment. This can be attributed to the stigma that surrounds addiction and how people don't want to talk about it. Soberlink supports the no-judgment zone that is dopey and strives to erase the stigma of alcohol addiction. Their remote alcohol monitoring tool has helped over 500,000 people to be more accountable in their sobriety. The Dopey Podcast was started with open and honest conversations about addiction and recovery, and Soberlink encourages this to help rebuild trust and maintain sobriety. We've teamed up with Soberlink to create a healthy habits guide for those in recovery. Visit www.soberlink.com slash dopey to download the healthy habits guide. And if you or someone you know can benefit from accountability for alcohol recovery, you'll also find a form on that page to sign up for 50 bucks off promo code exclusive to you guys in the Dopey Nation. So sign up and let Soberlink help you to stay off of the sauce. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about Sober Buddy since it's super available to you if you need some help with your sobriety. It's the little blue fluffy guy you may have seen in sober memes on Instagram or Facebook. You can either use their free service called Sober Buddy Mail, which is a daily email with bite-sized sober challenges plus motivation and tips that are super helpful, 
or you can download the Your Sober Buddy app, which is an interactive version that shifts your challenges and motivation based on how you respond to it. The app also has a sober tracker that's down to the second and daily check-ins from Buddy, where he asks you how you're feeling and if you're sober, and then gives you advice based on your mood. Right now, Sober Buddy has over 30,000 people using their service to get sober, and I know a ton of people in the Dopey Nation use it also, and they love it. If you're interested, please check them out at YourSoberBuddy.com. You can see all of their services there. It's so nice to have these free and super inexpensive resources out there for everyone now. It's been a long time coming. Again, YourSoberBuddy.com if you're interested, and thank you. So hello and welcome to another episode of Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. We're back in Manhattan in New York City with fresh new cables, and I'm joined by super friend of the show, unlicensed advice columnist, and strung out author Aaron Carr. Hi. Can you believe how much better it sounds with the cable? So much better. We were going to start with these other cables, and it was terrible. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but it would have driven us crazy. It was clicking and popping and making noise. And then we went to B&H and we're walking to B&H. And you know who I saw on the street? I saw fucking Beecher from Oz. We should have looked up his name. And I went, Beecher. <laughs> and he goes, hey. Yeah. And I was like, I'm such a big fan of yours. And then all these things are running through my head. Like, what's your name? Right. Will you come on Dopey? Right. I'm a heroin addict. I used to do heroin when I watched Oz. Me too. You were a heroin addict on Oz. Would you come on Dopey? Yeah. Did that come out? No. What came out? I couldn't hear you because it was so windy and your back was to me. But he seemed really genuinely happy to meet you. He, he was on his way to get his kid. He said, oh, are you from out of town? Yeah. And I said, no. <laughs> and then um, I, I just, I should have asked him to come on Dopey. If any of you guys were Oz fans, please let us know. Aaron, were you an Oz fan? Yeah, I watched that show. I mean, I was so loaded the entire time that show was on. But yeah, I used to watch that show high. Oh, my God. The luxury to me, like, it was a period in my life when I lived in Manhattan and I would go to Brooklyn. I think I would go to Brooklyn to Bushwick to get dope. And I would come back to Manhattan. I would ride the L train back. And then I think I would walk up from 14th Street and I would go to, to Rite Aid or, or CVS and I would steal cookies Right. Why did you steal them? I didn't. I spent all my money on dope. Oh. <laughs> I'd steal cookies, and I would come upstairs. I would buy these cookies. They were called H I T. Hit. They were like some kind of Dutch. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about this before. The yeah. The ones in the rolls. Yeah. And I would put them in the bowl, and I'd break them up like it was a bowl of cereal, and, and I'd cream. put it no, just milk, oh. and I would eat it like cereal, and I'd watch Oz <laughs> and shoot heroin, and like, that was my my, and even th even though heroin destroyed my life. I look back at that memory as a really wonderful time. I actually, my memories of watching Oz Loaded were like some of the happy Loaded memories. I remember it being like winter outside and warm in the apartment and mm -hmm. I was safe and I had dope and it's crazy. It's crazy that that's my recollection. Yeah. And this is supposedly a recovery podcast. <laughs> um, you know, I don't like it when people call it a recovery podcast. 
even though it is, but I, I don't like it. Well, it's drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. Right, but there was no recovery in drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. I guess addic- recovery is in the addiction. Yes. And I would love to have Beecher on the show, though. I guess I'd have to learn his actual name. I know. I can't believe we didn't look it up. I could look it up right now. They tattooed us. They burned a swastika into his ass on, on Oz. That's right. And then they got him strung out on heroin. That's right. And then he did the musical episode. He's a real, real dopey legend. And we, I'm sure he's done a ton of other things since then. No, he was like a Broadway star. He's big time. Yeah, I mean, I coulda, woulda, shoulda, but that was fu- it was funny. It was a cute moment. Well, Aaron just Googled him. His name is Lee Jorgensen. Turgensen. Either way. <laughs> I went to high school with a guy named Andrew Turgensen. I wonder if there's any relationship. Maybe. And number two, you obviously don't remember Oz the way I do. The guy who tattooed the swastika in his ass was Schillinger. Was but everyone called him Schillinger mm-hmm. on the show, and he mm-hmm. was a Nazi. And um, I always imagined that his name was Lee Turchison, and that Beecher's name was not that. So that's interesting. That is interesting. Now, how have you been, Aaron? What's going on with you? I'm okay. Uh, I have been. Gosh, I don't even know where this week has gone. I, you know, those like weeks where maybe it's like the the end of winter, where it just feels like one long week until it's spring. And mm. we had a really warm day in New York. Not to talk about the weather, but. Here I am. Here we are. <laughs> Fucking spring is going to be glorious. Yes. This, this morning it was brighter earlier and I saw a lady crossing the tracks to get to the train and I was like, seems brighter. And she goes, spring is coming. It is. It's beautiful out today. It's just a little cold. And then uh, it's like, looks like COVID is ending and it looks like masks are gone. But instead we have this terrible war. Yes. <laughs> There's like, you know, I mean, it, few people said this on Twitter, but it's like, congratulations, you survived two years of the pandemic. As a reward, here's World War Three. <laughs> well, it's at least we don't live in Ukraine, but it's interesting because no. I just got this special news from Katz's, mm-hmm. which is that if you know any, do you know what's in a Reuben sandwich? I think so. Yeah. Tell us. It's corned beef. Yes. Sauerkraut. Yes. Russian dressing. Right. Sometimes pickles, but no. not necessarily. It's just the sauerkraut, Russian dressing, coleslaw. No, no. just sauerkraut, you Russian no dressing, corned beef, and rye bread. Swiss though. cheese. Swiss cheese, that's right. But what's the word in that sandwich that might be ruffling feathers right now? What kind of dressing is it? Russian. Not anymore. What is it? It now? looks like at Katz's, they're changing it to Reuben sauce. God. I said it should be. This I said like you a should, freedom fries yeah, moment. I said we should call it liberty, liberty dressing, freedom dressing, and I mean right. like if they actually change the name of Russian dressing to Reuben sauce, I'll be shocked. I'll be uh, uh, because it's like it's not Russians. It's like there's no. there's innocent Russians out there. There are plenty of look at you looked at all the protests. There's plenty of Russians who are against the war. Sadly, all of independent Russian media was shut down. But uh, but dopey stands with Ukraine. Yeah, and dopey officially stands with Russian dressing. I'm not I'm not yes. down with Reuben sauce. We just sauce. don't stand with Putin. No, and certainly not Reuben sauce. No, I can't I can't <laughs> I can't live with that. Um, I I I had a, a weird thing happen to me, which is that like a couple weeks ago it was my daughter's twelfth birthday, right? And my daughter asks, you know, we kind of like a, get what kind of cake we get is a big deal. So she asked for Fudgy the Whale, you know, which is a a classic Carvel Mm -hmm. fudge topped cake, which we get for lots of different occasions. Because I always wanted Fudgy when I was a kid, but my parents were like, 
that's too luxurious. You don't get you don't get fudgy. <laughs> and I've never had cookie puss to this day. Have you ever had cookie puss? I don't know. I, I do they still they still make cookie puss? Well, they don't have Carvel in Manhattan, so you're not too exposed to Carvel. Well, no, but they have Carvel at grocery store at like Gristides. They have cookie puss in the Carvel store and it's glorious. Yeah. It's got like the ice cream cone nose and the fucking chip witch eyes and shit. And I've never had it. But Nora asked for fudgy Mm -hmm. birthday cake. So I got her the fudgy birthday cake. Happy birthday, Nora, for the family party. Mm -hmm. And and we only have like six people at the family party. So the cake stayed in the freezer and I ate the cake every night. Right. Okay. So it's her birthday on Monday. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I ate the cake. Mm -hmm. Friday, she's having her kids sleepover. And what did she want? What kind of cake did she want for the kids sleepover? Fudgy. Fudgy the whale. So I got another fudgy, and she wanted me to write to a whale of a girl on the cake, which I did. (laughs) And, um, And then they had some of the cake, and then I had another week of eating literally nightly fudgy i ate ice cream cake for 10 days straight Mm -hmm. then we went on our trip to pennsylvania upstate whatever i wake and and when they they went to see their friends they come back with a piece of ice cream cake for me so i think i had ice cream cake for like 12 days straight (laughs) right in the morning i wake up and my foot hurts Uh and i'm like "Uh uh-oh my foot hurts and, and, you know, a couple of days go by and it gets worse. And I go to see the podiatrist and the podiatrist tells me she thinks I have fucking gout. Which is one of your big fears. Gout? I mean, you've mentioned it many times. Gout? Yeah. I know. It's because it, it, it's like Linda's like, all I know is that only really unhealthy people get gout. <laughs> is what she told me. <laughs> and like, I looked it up. You know, people who get gout eat drink a lot of alcohol which i don't no. drink a lot of shellfish i barely eat shellfish yeah. organ meat never touch it right i mean russia shot on a little chopped liver right but uh red meat a little bit you know but on the trip i had a bacon cheeseburger you know and and all that I, and then it says sugar is possible it doesn't say ice cream it doesn't right. say ice cream cake it talks about purines or purines yeah raising uric acid yes and the doctor said it's either tendonitis arthritis or gout. And she thinks it's fucking gout. I think it's tendonitis. Let's pray for tendonitis, <laughs> right? We are praying. You know why? What? You don't wear good walking shoes. That's what Linda says. My walking sh- my shoes are good. Why not? There, there, there's no support in this. How do shoes. you know? Fucking, we just went and bought these cables. <laughs> and Aaron's like, I think it, it, the other cables <laughs> wore down. I was like, how do you know that? And and, and what did you answer when I asked how you Well, I that? said, I just think that. But I also, it's because I've, with iPhone charging cords, like after time, the, the connection gets like fucked up. Listen, as my departed mother would say, mm-hmm. what does that have to do with the cost of tea in China? Uh-huh. It, it's like, it's a whole <laughs> other thing. But these cables are amazing. But his shoes really are not supportive. How do, they're sockenies. They're they don't look supportive. You need you need more arch support in there. Because Have you ever seen a foot as flat as mine? It's like flippers. I swear so to God. Is, so you are probably really prone to tendonitis with flat fucking feet, and you don't have orthotics in your shoes. That's what Linda said too. I, I agree with Linda. And in other news, why aren't you guys subscribing to Dopey YouTube? What's the problem, Aaron? I don't know. It's free. It's free. And, you know, I will say that there's a lot of funny shit on there. And if you didn't listen to Dopey regularly, which a lot of you obviously do, 
It would be like, whatever, you don't subscribe to Dopey mm-hmm. YouTube. But you listen to Dopey, and you still don't subscribe to Dopey And YouTube. it's not like committing to an hour-long video. No, they're it's very like, short. They're short videos. Subscribe to Dopey YouTube. Subscribe to Patreon. There's so much good stuff. Support the show. If you like Dopey, su- go to Dopey Patreon. Throw a couple bucks. Let your freak flag fly. Help us out. <laughs> the fuck? Um, what else? What else is going on with you? Uh, I spent my morning in a, in a, like a PTA auction meeting for my son's school. And you know, sometimes in life, like you think, well, on Saturday, tomorrow, I'm going to have 19 years off of drugs, which is wild, man. Congratulations. I didn't know, like, you know, you think like 20 years ago, I didn't know that I'd be fast forwarding to sitting in a PTA meeting on a cold morning in New York. Right. You know, with 19 years clean. Like, I think that's wild. Not to mention, now you're in this weird kitchen in this public housing (laughs) building. (laughs) Matt Beecher on the street. It's been a banner fucking day. Um, 19 years, it's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. It is amazing. And I I think, uh, how did you do it, Aaron? Real quick. You're not going to go to a meeting to celebrate. So tell us. Celebrate here. How did you do it? I did it by by learning how to sit in my body, which was through a variety of things. I did it by staying even when I didn't want to stay. Um, I learned that like those moments where I felt like I wanted to tear my skin off, which would usually have been the moments that I relapsed and I relapsed a million times. I just like sometimes sat on my hands to get through the moment and then started doing the work to sort of get it like what the root cause was of my addiction and work on, you know, trauma and mental health stuff and, and just kept doing as you would say, the next right thing. I say that? You say that all the time. No, I do say that all the time. But also, I think... Hold on one second. <laughs> okay. My humble brag. No, that's not... That's, listen, I think it's good. I think I'm... I'm listen, 19 years is nothing to scoff yeah. at. And I'm, I'm incredibly... I don't think proud is not the right word. I'm happy for I you. you mean, yeah. I celebrate you. I'm proud of me. I'm proud of you too, but yeah. not from a looking down. I know. I, 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 I get I, it. I'm a, from a nice standpoint. And uh, fucking hell, I'm proud of anybody who gets any time, including me. I can't believe it. You know, I also think it's, I think it's okay to look back at watching Oz with a bowl of stolen cookies and yeah. heroin and look back fondly and be sober. Like, I think that's okay. Look, if every single minute of using was torture, we wouldn't have done it for so long. No, I really I really enjoyed getting high. Um, and I really, really enjoy being sober. And I really have to say that um, the community of Dopey is like, it's happening, yes. you know? And I, I, I say that because I'm friends with so many people in the Dopey Nation remotely now. Right. And it's like, it's cool. Like, it makes me happy. It makes me happy that we've built this community kind of without really trying. But the dopes in the Dopey Nation are really trying through uh, Dopey Nation Zoom. Yes, and, and we had the Patreon Zoom on Saturday, just this last Saturday. Yeah, what would you think of the Patreon Zoom? It's fun. I mean, it's like, it's just nice. You don't to sound see- very enthusiastic <laughs> when you say it like I didn't that. sound. No, I mean, I wouldn't show up if I didn't enjoy it. I think it's, it's, 
it's just nice to connect with people and see people's faces and like get feedback about the show and and like just listen to other people talk i mean i think for me like from my perspective it's like i like hearing from the people who are listening to the show and and like about what's happening with them and the weird little Kahoot game. No, fun. we have fun. We, and we play this game for big prizes. Uh-huh. And not to mention, though, and don't be Patreon Zoom. You, you, I mean, the last one was free. They're free here and there, but right. normally you have to be a dopey patron. But dopey Zoom is free to everybody. Mm-hmm. They do NA, AA, no A, <laughs> Dharma. I just heard from the woman in uh, who runs Dharma Recovery, and I think she's going to be on a, a Dopey Zoom soon. Awesome. And um, listen, Dopey Zoom is a great community thing. I've been posting more about the Dopey Zoom, so you can find it there. I don't know if you write this down, but the Zoom ID is 804-300-586. The password is toodles in all lowercase. There's 26 meetings a week. It's amazing. I mean, and that's exactly what you said. Like, not even trying to do this, this whole community has sprung up around what you started with Chris, and that's amazing. And I know Chris would uh, would love it. He would love it. And um, and I just want to say this: this week I went to the doctor. Okay, I went and I and Finally. I I also <laughs> want to say this: I haven't had dessert since monday and mm-hmm. it's friday today the show is going to come out right. and i haven't had dessert in four days which means and i barely had any carbs this week which means and barely any sugar which that you know what that means that the dopey what do we call it the dopey health challenge <laughs> i think we used to call it dopey fitness challenge is back on so who is on board you on board what does it mean what do i have to do very little just say you're on board. okay i'll do it she's on board <laughs> dopey fitness challenge is coming around again and I'm incredibly proud of Dopey and uh, of myself. I have to say, hold on. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very proud of myself. Um, but uh, I'm also just proud of the show because we stockpile all these fucking cool people. And today's guest is nobody to sneeze at. No, he is a, a legendary journalist and a speaker and a, an Award, author, award-winning author. And he's like fucking big time in the addiction recovery journalism space. Yes. He's as big as anybody we've had. Oh yeah. If there's a Mount Rushmore of addiction journalism, this guy would be right on there. Yeah, he's been on the front lines reporting about it in 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 ways that have won him a lot of acclaim and and he's very well respected not just within the recovery community but also within the the world of news and journalism and and publishing. Right. And his name is Sam Quinones, and he wrote a book called Dreamland, and he wrote a book called The Least of Us, and he is a, he's a mensch. He's a serious, yeah. serious journalist. Uh, but before we get to Sam, my dad is about to have surgery on his knee, so throw him a prayer if you can, throw some good vibes. And before you pray for my father, uh, we got to talk about BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored also by BetterHelp Online Therapy. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. I actually did online therapy today. It was awesome. Yeah, I did online therapy on Tuesday. (laughs) 
You don't you do online therapy too? Yeah, I mean since the pandemic, I haven't gone back to in person. Yeah, I've been doing it. It's amazing. I I it's really helped me. And I don't say that as a thing. I suggest doing it. You get a deal. This Dopey sponsored by BetterHelp and Dopey Nation people get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash dopey podcast. One more time. B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash dopey podcast. And here it is. Uh, Sam Quinones, who I literally, I've tried to get Sam Quinones on Dopey for years. years. Here he is, Sam Quinones. We have a very renowned guest, an author, a journalist. Um, so I was talking to Mark Marin about the future of Dopey, and he always called Dopey the, the junkie clown show. And he said the only way we could ascend from junkie clownness is if we got Sam Quinones on the show. And after a year of trying, we've gotten Sam Quinones on the show. So welcome to Dopey. Well, it's great to be with you, Dave. Thanks very much for trying so hard. Well, I, I, I do my best. It's like uh, you got sometimes <laughs> perseverance is everything. And and I know that you work incredibly hard. Like your your books are amazing. And just the, the amount of people that you talk to, it sounds like you understand what my kind of perseverance is like. Yes, right. It's necessary in my job, too. I, I went and I, I mean, like you've been writing about dope now for years and years. What drew you to it in the first place? I really didn't want to, honestly. I, um, um, well, in, in one sense, I didn't want to. I didn't really want, to, want to write about addiction. I wanted to write about um, drug trafficking and Mexico and crime. Basically, I'm a crime reporter at heart. I lived in Mexico for 10 years. When I was down there, uh, these were years that were very peaceful, and I didn't really have any interest in the drug thing. Um, it just wasn't that important a story, in fact. Uh, I come back to, the, to, to California, Los Angeles, where I'm from, get a job at the LA Times, working for them now, then the, the drug war in Mexico kicks off to 05, 06, gets really, really bad. And they put me on a team of reporters, and I begin to write about the drug war from the U.S. side, the drug trafficking up here and that kind of thing. And I began to realize that heroin was making a comeback. I could not understand why. Right. And so I began to write about that. And that led me to uh, the story in my first book on the topic about the guys from the town of Jalisco, Nayarit, who sell heroin like a delivery system, like, like pizza, uh, you know, and they're very expansionary, so they're moving all over the country, 20, 25 states or something like that. But along the way then, I began to realize that the reason that they had this enormous new market was because of the whole pain pill explosion and revolution in pain management and American medicine and they held that we could prescribe those pills for almost anybody for any reason and that kind of thing. And that's kind of what got me into it. I did not even know about that. I did not know, not know what an Oxycontin was when I really started all this. I were a Vicodin or any of that. And that I, I was pretty, pretty, you know, well versed on the Sinaloa drug cartel. Right, and that's all in Dreamland: True Tales of America's Opioid Epidemic, which is an incredible book. And everybody should, everybody in the Dopey Nation, if you haven't read Dreamland, you should read Dreamland because it's our story. You know, and, and that's the right. interesting thing to me. You Did you ever do uh, opioids uh, recreationally at all? Never. Did never you? done them. I've, I've never, and you know, the truth is, 
I, I want to want to correct you on one little smite little thing because it is kind of important. Um, the subtitle to the book uh, is The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. And the reason I used the word opiate was because when I was writing the book, nobody knew about this problem. I mean, it was very, very difficult to find anybody who's, uh, who had an, an addict in the family right. who wanted to talk about it on the record. And, um, and I just thought it was like this vast, vast national silence I encountered writing the book. And the reason I use opiate was because I knew that nobody knew what an opioid was. You know, I wrote now, down. I wrote you know, down. Years I, later, I, I, I wrote down it, opiate, yeah. and I, my handwriting is so bad. I read opioid. I had it right. I just yeah, read well, it wrong, so I apologize. But, but the reason I wanted to say that is because at the time when I was writing the book, nobody knew what an opioid was. It was that's, that shows you kind of the the extent to which this topic has evolved in the public mindset. Now everybody knows it. They have entire. Um, you know, uh, headlines and, and news stories and, and TV shows about it, and it's part of the popular culture. But at the time, um, I had to call it an opiate epidemic because I knew nobody would know what an opioid was if I put that in a subtitle. Right. And you, I mean, your book totally blew the lid off this thing and made it incredibly uh, close to home because the stories are so yeah. homespun and they're so human, which is like the incredible strength of the writing is, is, you feel the people in the book, you know? It, Thank you. Yeah, that was the, that was the point. I mean, it, it, I, I try to apply like my basic beat journalism, beat reporting that I would use for, you know, any other job, full-time job at a newspaper. Uh, and, and with that, you, you try your best to tell stories as close to the ground as you, as you can. Uh, I did, I was able to find people eventually, who wanted to talk about it, but it took quite a lot of lot of work to to get there. You know, it was not easy. Um, but but the idea was you have to tell those stories uh, to make the data you know come alive in a sense. Absolutely. And when you say you weren't interested in writing about dope, like what was it like in the first place as you started to uncover these addicts and started to talk to these drug addicts all over the country? I, I guess I never really had understood the extent to which well two things the extent to which first of all opioids in particular seem to absolutely transform our brains and redirect our mm. basic survival instincts right you know you have these this brain that has survived they allowed us to survive uh, in amazing ways um and dope stifles all of that on really it doesn't even it stifles it but also redirects it towards the complete obedience very conformist thing um uh this the complete obedience towards finding and using dope it's interesting because in the popular culture you know dope fiends are like these kind of outside society types johnny thunders from the new york dolls right. and Lou Reed with, with heroin and charlie parker and you know, you get all these, but in, in truth, you know, this dope is extraordinarily uh, conformist. It's all about business, all about the obedience to, to a high, to, to, to a, a master, you know? And, and so I did not understand that. I would say that, you know, that there's a reason relapse happens and it's so difficult to untangle yourself from all this. Um, the other thing I did not understand um, is that one addict just doesn't affect that person. 
the, the, an addict has a ripple effect throughout the family, mm. throughout the neighborhood, business, church, whatever it is. Um, it, it, it has a, one person in addiction is, uh, you know, uh, uh, creating very significant collateral damage, if you like, uh, among many people, extended family first, of course. Uh, and to the extent that they're able to keep that quiet, uh, maybe that's where it ends, but frequently it's not, it's, it's, it involves, you know, neighbors and, you know, and thieving and end of trust end of mortgages, uh, huge amounts of savings. And, you know, so you have this ripple effect sure. throughout the family that affects a lot of different people, just far more than just the person in, who's, who's using dope. You just said so many incredibly interesting things to me. You know, I'm a heroin addict, and I and I loved you know Johnny Thunders, Keith Richards, Charlie Parker, Jerry Garcia, all of those people. Right. And it never even occurred to me that this revolution becomes this utter conformity. Like I never heard that yeah. phrase. So I really appreciate that phrase. And um, and it's funny because you think that when you get out of your addiction that you're going to be boring and you're going to be conformist when in reality you actually have freedom. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, man. I, I, yeah. I, I, I have to say that is an amazing concept that I first encountered in the back seat of a car. Well, I was in the front seat and I picked up when I was a crime reporter in the city of Stockton, California, I was doing a, a, a series of stories on the, the, the prostitutes along this one strip of, you know, kind of ugly flea bag motels and stuff. And I come upon this couple and this couple was just the worst strung out. It's so you know, beastly hot and they're out there, you know, and he's pimping out his girlfriend. And so I take him out to lunch and this kind of thing. And he was the first one who ever said that to me. He says, isn't your life boring? And I looked at this guy <laughs> and I'm looking at a guy who all he does is walk up and down the street, begging, praying for his girlfriend to be picked up by some man she's never seen before to get 20 bucks, to get 40 bucks or whatever it is for a blowjob, And, and then they're both going to score. That was how he spent literally every day. Right. And to me, I'm looking at him going, boring? You know, I don't think you're anyone to talk about boring. To me, to me, the, the life of an addict is the most boring, conformist, um, you know, life I've ever seen. There's nothing that happens. You can't point to anything later on that you've actually achieved except for score dope in a variety of, you know, kind of very daring ways sometimes. That's about it. Well, um, it's a crazy, it, it's, it's, it's a crazy pendulum. That's for sure. It's like somebody puts yeah. like meat on a stick and lures you into a trap and you get the meat and then you're in the trap. You know what I mean? And, and the first exactly. bite of the meat is delicious. And maybe the 10th bite of the meat is delicious. And you don't realize you're in a trap until you're kind of out of meat. <laughs> I don't know if that's the best, if that's the best analogy, but, uh, but you, you think, you think it's all sorts of exciting until you're sure you're in hell. You know, and then you, you kind well, of. Well, I've run into people who said that that's what they. One, one guy, I remember, told, told me, said, what I really missed was like, I was about as addicted to procuring the dope mm. as I was to the dope itself. I was like thinking I was some kind of like James Bond. Adventure. You know, daring. Sure. Yeah. You know, and really you look back on it and all you've done with your life is procure this nasty, shitty little substance at the great cost of love, trust, 
good feelings Freedom. among people around you, um, enormous quantities of money uh, that would be that you probably like, like, you know, if you're an addict for five years, you're probably talking about two or three college educations worth. Um, you know, it, it's it's a remarkable thing. And as I was into it, see, I was really into Keith Richards, too, man. I play the guitar. I remember when I first heard um, uh, a Rolling Stones record where I was playing the guitar and this guy taught me how to bend a guitar note, mm. uh, a guitar string. And that was like this revelation to me. I was like, oh, my God, this is like this. I, I'm seeing the world in a different way. All these things are possible because I was playing Michael Rowe, the boat ashore, and where have all the flowers gone up to that point? Here, this guy's playing this bluesy thing, and he's bending the note, and then I got Get Your Ya-Ya's Out by the Rolling Stones, and I, I listened to to uh, Keith uh, Richards and Mick Taylor bend the hell out of those notes on yeah. every song, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is like a, a revelation about what you can actually do in life, far more than I ever thought, you know? And so I, I had that same kind of feeling about, you know, Keith Richards, very cool and all, but he was like an elite addict. He could, he could have, he had tons of money, he could do whatever he wanted, but mostly it seems to me to be a thing where you are just imprisoned, you're obedient. It's very much like people who are just obedient to American consumerism. That's all, all it is. It's not, there's no rebel without a cause. I, I'm, I've been cured of that idea. No, I think um, that's very right, and it's super important to hear you say that. And I've heard you talk about, um, you know, how how addiction circumvents kind of evolution, and how we we act like against our base nature just to stay yes. high. And um, right. and I also heard you talk about when you wrote about dope, you were writing about America, and you were writing about yes. the the fractured American dream. Um, and, and, and how quickly did it occur to you that this was the ultimate uh, or a great microcosm of our society in itself? I, I, I would say that those ideas came to me as I was writing Dreamland, the first book on this, I wrote on this topic. Um, I really started that book thinking, okay, I'm going to write about two things. Very neat. One is pharmaceutical drug company marketing of opioids, Oxycontin, Vicodin, and all the rest. Mm -hmm. And the other is this one town in Mexico where they, they are marketing heroin, black tar heroin mainly, and, and this very kind of expansion. It's almost like a franchise, Domino's franchise kind of way. Right. And I thought that was a really great story. And I was really, and that is part, clearly part of the book. But as time went on, I began to realize, oh, the reason that there's deep, deep things here that are going on, it's gotten beyond, far beyond what I thought the book was. And that's the beauty of journalism. I find you cannot think that the book that you're writing or the thing that you're writing is as you thought it was when you began, if the facts start t tugging you somewhere else, the interviews start tugging you somewhere else. You've got to follow, you like follow the, 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 the ocean current. You've got to let that, let, let it, let it take you somewhere else that you didn't know when you started because now you know more and now you're talking to people and it it's just a, a testament to how many people you actually talk to you got to talk to many 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 people to get there but eventually it just, and so i began to think man this is about what we've done to community you know right and very quickly you're right about the opioid issue you get into a, a dichotomy of it's it's isolation versus community it doesn't matter what what the the the, the, the detail is it's always about that people I, I, people initially told me 
this is all about economic devastation. You know, it's a uh, Appalachian, the Rust Belt. This is where this started, and that's true. It did start there, but by the time I was onto it, Orange County, you know, you had Charlotte, North Carolina, big banking center. You had um, uh, suburban Indianapolis, all areas that are done, doing marvelously well, all besieged by, by, by opioids and then heroin and all the rest. And, and I began to think it really didn't have as much to do with economics as it did with the basic isolation, the shredding of community, the, the replacement of true human connection with social media, which yeah. is actually a prehistoric form of communication, if you really think about it, it seems to me. And, and as time went on, I began to think, this is about who we become as a country. You know, in so many ways, we've turned our back on what we need as human beings. You know, if you think about it, we evolved. One of the things we evolved that was absolutely essential to our propagation as a species was this feeling of community. Right. We, we had to be with other people. That's how we survive. People, human beings die in isolation. That's true now. It was true in the caveman days, too. You wandered off and away from the group. You got eaten. You broke your leg. No one was there to help you. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so we got away from that in this in this country, particularly, I think, in a million ways. You could talk about them for, for days, really, it seems to me, all the different ways in which we turned our back on what brought us together and began to see, feel like, God, that's a pain in the ass. I hate other, being around other people. They don't think like me. They, they don't believe like me. They, they believe these stupid things. They're nasty people, you know, on and on and on. There's a million ways you could talk about it. But it gets down to so dope really becomes my feeling as the manifestation of how we have shredded a community right. in our country. Right. Um, nourishing in so nourishing many ways that leave us vulnerable then to the dope. The dope is a symptom of our own vulnerability for having destroyed something that was actually we evolved to to find absolutely essential, not just a good thing, but absolutely essential to our to our, our, our thriving and prospering. Well, I mean, as an addict, you know, when I used, I, I generally used alone and, uh, and I was nourished by yeah. the, by the euphoric effect of the heroin and the fact that when I took heroin or methadone, I felt okay, you know, and, and in recovery and making this podcast, to be honest with you, all of a sudden this community has gravitated to us and has kind of sprung up amongst themselves and it's like it's the most amazing thing to be a part i'm a part of a recovery community and the dopey community yeah. has become this thriving force of goodwill of all these people yeah. that were once isolated so when you talk about shredding community and recovering community and how recovering community is really the same as recovering from addiction it's the greatest gift of recovering from addiction whether it's just communing yes. with your family or with a bigger group it's incredible right. but you don't realize yes. what you're missing when you're out there you only realize it once you find it again and as you only realize it once the dope has departed and you're thinking again like a right. rational human being the dope and the obsession and strip the copper wire and right, go, right, you know, right, um, right. all that crap, you know, that you used to do that, that is all about negativity. It's all about inertia. It's all about giving up. Right. And, um, and, and, and when you, then, then you become a different person. It's all, you know, I've also always compared it to, um, re recovering addicts. Um, hold on a second. Let me cough here. <coughs> when you get a recovery community in, um, in an area, it's very much like getting a whole bunch of new uh, 
Mexican immigrants. And I say that because I lived in Mexico. And I, I, Mexican immigrants, wherever you go in the United States, they're largely a barometer of economic health. Right. Mexicans don't go to places that are economically sickly. Like, they didn't go to New, uh, New Orleans before Katrina, for example. There were no Mexicans in, in New Orleans before that. And then the jobs came, because they go where the jobs are, right? And so they bring with them a kind of a, um, an articulate kind of form of, of gratitude, um, willingness to walk through walls, almost literally, um, and energy for a, ch- a new chance at life. Like, I'm not... Cl- cloistered in my village where I was born out of power and with no real opportunities. Now I'm coming to the United States and I have these opportunities and I'm going for it, man. And that is the same what happens. It's what happens when, when addicts dig, dig into recovery. Their brains become full of gratitude, of new energy, and more creativity. They can see the future. They can see what might be possible. And that's what Mexican immigrants are right. seeing. I know this. I've, I've written one of my books before all this was all about Mexican immigration. One of my books out of my 10 years living in Mexico. And, and I began to see that, too, as I wrote Dreamland. I began to see, damn, if you have recovering addicts in your area, it's, all, it's like getting this new infusion of energy and creativity and optimism in the place of fatalism, inertia, and negativity. Right. It's people who can detect opportunity and, and recognize it and act on it. And, and are grateful for a second chance at life because they know how close they came to death yes. so many times. Yes. I love the way you say that. After you did Dreamland and you started to tour Dreamland and, and speak in different places, what was the general reaction? Well, the general reaction was amazing to me. First of all, it was the simple fact that that people invited me to come speak. I mean, when I was writing Dreamland, I was absolutely certain that I told my wife this uh, on a couple of occasions coming home from trips. When I come home and be like, man, nobody wants to talk about this. Right. So depressing. It's so frustrating. You know, I'm out there. I could see people are dying all over. I could see it's a major issue. And no, and everyone's. And so when the book comes out. Within about six months of the book coming out, I began to feel this shift, like a tidal shift, like the tide changing, right? And all of a sudden, people are coming, are asking me to come speak. And I, I begin to go speak, and that creates its own momentum, in fact. And as time goes on, more and more awareness, you begin to see obituaries now telling the truth. You begin to see more and more newspapers begin to cover the issue. And as the time goes on, um, I'm getting these um, just huge numbers of, of speaking engagements. So I think I, I think I counted and I did between September 2015 and February 2020, I did 265 speeches, just an un, ungodly amount of speaking. But it was because I just couldn't believe that people actually wanted me to come speak to them because I had lived the other. Right? I lived the, the darker night, you know, now it was bright day and people were like, please come speak. Let's talk about this. We want to, you know, and so I began to do that. And. I would say that what struck me in the middle of all the polarization that is so famously afflicting our country, I found enormous unity on this topic, just enormous unity. It's amazing. Um, you know, I don't know who I was talking to because the topic of who's you're going to vote for president and did you vote for Trump or not and all that stuff just didn't come up. It's it's it was a 
it was a way of bringing communities together this op this topic because there was very few people who were all in favor of heroin you know what i mean totally um so so i was stunned and the speech began to get standing ovations every every time out and um you know when i was when i finished dreamland it's another thing when i finished dreamland there were three three lawsuits against drug companies by these by three different counties all of those were on hold when i when i turned my manuscript in when the book came out there were three you know within a year all of a sudden you begin to see these lawsuits proliferate within a two or three years i think the number was 2600 you're talking about tribes counties cities and then eventually all of basically the entire every attorney general in america and and of course they begin to then apply the subpoena power to the records of these drug companies and all of a sudden unbelievable amounts of information that I, the kind that i as a lowly independent freewheeling but unbudgeted <laughs> freelance writer we had no chance of ever seeing and so now you get the the enormous power of attorney general office the subpoena power and all that and all of a sudden you get these huge caches of um of of documents you know so as time went on it was it built i would say 2016 was a remarkable year then the paperback comes out and uh, and that 2016 17 18 and 19 were just one year at, when I was doing more every year and speaking to bigger crowds. And it was just, it was startling because I and my family had, we had lived through this. The other, you know, we had lived through a time when nobody wanted to talk about it. When I felt I was all alone, when I have very little money with which to do this story. And all of a sudden it's, you're getting these huge amounts of, of, of uh, awareness, people coming out of the shadows that they, that they've lived in now for, for many years. You know, one guy told me, he said, you know, he, he was one of the few parents who was talking about it. And he said to me, so one of the things you're going to see is true is that all across this country, there are family members going to sleep, crying themselves to sleep at night in the dark, their arms around a photo album, crying for their loved one, terrified of two, of, 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 of lacerated by two things. One is, um, the death of their child and how that child died or a loved one could be a husband could be a brother or whatever it is sure um, and the other is terrified that people will find out how that person really died and um, it was a national silence that began to break after the book I felt I felt it this way I have to tell you and it's gonna sound immodest to say it but after the book came out that's when I began to feel the the, the silence begin to fragment all of a sudden people were now coming out on Facebook or at council meetings or wherever. And you began to feel that intense power of people now seeing they were not alone again, forming community. They were all in isolation and then they become step out of the shadows and they begin to see, gee, I'm not the only one in a rate 10 mile radius with this problem. Actually, I'm the third person on the street, right? You know, that kind of thing they begin to realize. Well, what you did is you did an incredible service in, in ending the stigma and helping them not feel this horrible shame associated with this pain. You know, that's a, it's a do it's a double whammy of, of 
agonizing pain coupled with shame. And you write a book yeah. about this that un, that turns the rock over and you see the worms and you see what's happening. It's an amazing service that you did. And when you show Thank up you. able to speak about it, it makes the, it, it feeds the community. And, and, and these people, like in our community, you know, like my friend Chris died from fentanyl. My friend Todd died from fentanyl um, as we yeah. were making this show, you know, um, yeah. which is yeah. like, it, it's 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 very 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 hard to I mean and 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 that's probably where I'm going is like you start with with opiates you start with heroin and oxycotton and, and now like I mean my friends survived heroin and oxycotton it's when fentanyl hit them that uh that they were no survivor not no yeah no surviving fentanyl uh, you may do it for a while but um. My feeling is very strongly that there's no such thing as a long-term fentanyl addict on the streets. It, you, you, you either get 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 into treatment, and that's very difficult to do because of the the tolerance that it builds up in you is is, is monstrous, um, or or you die, and and that's what's behind. I think one of the the also the, the fact that fentanyl is now everywhere. You know, what I mean, it's that's one of the the sad tragedies of COVID is that it hit just at the very moment when the Mexican drug trafficking world had kind of covered, well, covered the country effectively with not one, but two drugs. It's an unprecedented thing, if you think about it. One area, one source essentially covering the entire United States with, uh, in this case, fentanyl and, and methamphetamine. So when, uh, to when, such a degree that their the price collapses, you know. I'm sorry? When was the inspiration for the second book? Well, the inspiration didn't come from me initially, I have to say. I was exhausted after Dreamland. I mean, I was really, real, my little brain was thinking, oh my God, I never thought I'd do a more difficult book than Dreamland. And my publisher kept on pestering me, hey, we need another book, hey, you need, and it took about a year and a half, in fact, for them, for me to see that it was, that Sentinel was becoming such a scourge and that and it also, I, I always had wanted, in fact, to include in Dreamland, but had no space to do so, more stories of people who were working kind of in small ways to recover a community in their areas. And so I began to think, well, maybe as I began to kind of separate myself from Dreamland, the, the experience of writing it, which was grueling, and uh, I began to kind of get some rest under me, <laughs> some relaxation a little bit, you know. Yeah. I began to think, well, maybe there. This is the story, and then fentanyl began to grow and grow and become. It wasn't just then the areas that were opioid addiction started, like in Ohio and West Virginia, Kentucky, Indiana, places like that. It was spreading all over the country, and eventually it hits the West Coast, like 2018, roughly. Methamphetamine, meanwhile, is going coast to coast the other way, coming from the west. To the east, hitting the, hitting the New England, which never had any meth at all by 2019, um, staggering quantities of that crap. Um, just so, I began to see that this was a new day. Effectively, it's a new day. It's a synthetic drug era we are in. We've always had synthetic drugs, we have ecstasy and stuff like this, but never remotely close to the quantities that we're seeing now. And just at that moment is when COVID hits. You know, and COVID hits, and, and so all the folks who are who are addicted now have the most dangerous drug, and and they're all alone too. They're isolated, 
and folks who were in recovery when they relapse are relapsing onto this ghastly shit um, and, 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 and dying. And, and it's, it's, you know, and then the dealers are figuring out, hey, if I, if I mix fentanyl into my cocaine, I will create an opioid addict. Right. And I'll have him buying for me every day. And, and again, this is complete obedience. It's complete conformity. It's about, it's about business. It's not being about being some rebel with a, a low slung guitar across your, 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 your back. You know, it's, it's, uh, you are strung out, you are obedient to the master and, and the, the drug dealers figured it out. Fentanyl was one of the best things that ever happened to a drug dealer because if you, if you have heroin, a heroin addict will buy from you certainly every day and use twice a day, let's say, just by example, for, for example, that oh same God. person on, on fentanyl will use four or five times a day because fentanyl's great attribute that makes a magnificent anesthetic in surgery is that it takes you in and out quickly. Right. It's not a long-term, long-lasting um, a, a drug. And so very quickly after surgery, you're up and about and you're talking lucidly and you're not doped up or anything like that. Well, it's that same thing that makes it such a great drug for a drug dealer because now you have to be using four or five times a day. The, the, the time between use and the onset of withdrawal symptoms is sometimes... I've heard it to be, it depends on the person, of course, but I think it, it's something along the lines of four to six hours. You're very quickly beginning to feel that again. And so it's a terrific, terrific drug uh, if you are a dope dealer uh, and, a, and a torment uh, uh, if you're a user. Why don't you tell us, because like when, when we, a few weeks ago, I had a kid on this show who uh, was a fentanyl dealer and an addict, and he's facing all sorts of prison time, and he made all sorts of money. And we talk about fentanyl all over the place, but we don't really talk about its origin and, and how it is so cheap and how it gets spread out. Where did it come from, right. and how did it hit the scene? Well, first of all, it was invented in 1960 by Paul Jansen. Paul Jansen was one of the great inventors, drug inventors of all time. He, he ran a... a, a, a a business out of a, a, a small village in Belgium, uh, Beers, um, uh, Belgium, and really, I mean, he invented some of the great drugs of our time. You know, he invented loperamide, which uh, uh, which uh, cures um, uh, 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 diarrhea. You know, I mean, it, there's there's so many things that guy. One of them was this very fast-acting um, uh, 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 opioid, synthetic opioid, no plant involved, no poppies involved in this thing. And it revolutionized surgery. It made all kinds of surgery possible. I've had fentanyl myself in a, um, uh, following a heart attack and, and, and very glad that they gave it to me. You know, I was able, with, on fentanyl, I was kind of half doped up and then half watching the operation on the video screen above me. It's wow. just a remarkable thing. Um, and for a long time, you know, like small time chemists would come up with some batch and people would die on the streets and stuff. But it really became became part of the mix in um, when the Seminole drug cartel figured it out. 2006, there was a lab that they funded, um, and they 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 did not know what fentanyl was at this point. Um, but this guy starts to make it, and they get very mad. They wanted to make a fentanyl, which is to make a meth. Sure. And he doesn't sure. want. To, he he makes fentanyl, and then he sits him down and says, "This is the most profitable drug you will ever see in your lifetimes." It, it'll take a 50 to one cut. So one kilo will make 50 kilos of saleable product on the street. And they, they don't believe sure enough though he's right. And, and they, that's when they begin thinking in terms of fentanyl. 
But then the Chinese chemical companies begin to, to get in the mix and they begin to make it and sell, sell it over the web. And this begins about 2000, what, 13, 14, 15, certainly. Um, you begin to see it there. And it, it hits first in the areas where the opioid epidemic was worse. You know, uh, Ohio, Kentucky, places like that in those states, a uh, variety of states like that. And you begin to see it first mixed into the heroin. And that's why, and they do a very, very bad job of mixing it because a very small amount of fentanyl will get you high and a little bit more will kill you and they don't know how to mix it and so you begin to see all these um all these uh people dying uh and overdosing all over like big clusters 70 in cincinnati one weekend i remember that kind of thing right and along the way then you know the mexicans begin buying it from the chinese but along the way the mexicans figure out on their own this amateur chemist had gone to prison and so they didn't really have access to him um, when they learned about fentanyl from, and then everybody's on knows fentanyl. After a while, pretty soon they get chemists who teach them how to make it, and and so it really begins to hit in a national way once the Mexicans take it over. You're never going to get national coverage of a um, of one drug sending it through the mails as the chemical companies were doing in China. It's just it's just not a feasible way. You're, you're sending a pound at a time. You know, it'll get shut down. Only, right. right you, the only way you're going to get to complete coverage of the entire country is when it's an extraordinarily sophisticated, very uh, elaborate and, and um, uh, uh, well-funded and, 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 and expanded a group of traffickers like you have down on the western side of, of Mexico, all different kinds of groups, all figuring out the same thing and selling it and, and very aggressive. And then, of course, uh, uh, trafficking, trafficking it through a 2,000-mile border with which they have a, a free trade agreement. So you have all these trucks going back and forth. There's right. no ability to check, check most of these trucks. Um, I'd say less than 5% of the trucks get get searched. Tested, get searched and, and so that's what begins to happen about 2016, 17, 18. You begin to see it hit all over then. And that's when it begins to be, you begin to see it uh, trafficked and uh, uh, included in cocaine by the local dealers adding it to it. And you begin to see the, the, the counterfeit pills from, from Mexico and, and by the tens of millions now right. coming up. Because, because synthetic drugs allow you, if you have access to chemicals, which they do through shipping ports, you can make these, this dope all year round. There's no seasons, no sunlight. You don't care about any of that. There's no shortage. Yeah. The amount, the amount of drugs that come in is insane. And I have two questions. The first question is kind of like the obvious question that everybody kind of asks, which is, and I know that dope fiends like tend to be interested in the dope that kills you because it's so strong. But like if the, if, if the fentanyl needs a 50 to one cut, then why doesn't Mexico or the or the chemist just do the cut and make more money and sell more product rather than put out this ridiculously lethal version? Because they're all about risk and reward, and they want to get. It's so much easier to smuggle one kilo. Of right, fentanyl right. Than than a hundred, fifty, fifty kilos right, right, of, right, right. Of, of mixed. Right, right. That's fentanyl obvious. with some inert powder, and so, and and then of course at the local level, the two things are happening, right? Um, you get some powder fentanyl and you, you want to mix and you, you know, you, so, so, and then you're selling cocaine, you mix it into cocaine and eventually you have an opioid addict. He's got to buy from you every day instead of every weekend or whatever a cocaine addict is using. And, um, so it's a customer expansion 
move in again. As you say, if someone dies, well, it's an advertisement. Yeah. That's an ad. That's not a warning. It's an advertisement. Exactly. Everybody like rushes to you. Right. And, 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 and then also the other truth is once you have a community of, in a a certain drug economy in a certain region, where many, many people have now survived their initial contact with, with fentanyl, and now they're pretty much addicted to it. It's almost incumbent upon every dealer then to sell fentanyl mix, because if you word gets out that you're not, you'll never have any customers. You know, they're, 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 so once everybody's doing it, everybody has to do it. Or once a few people are doing it, everybody has to do it. And so you begin to see these, these kind of like this spread of people, they don't dare not put fentanyl in their dope you know what i mean so all of that means that you've got um you know you've got a, a, the, the spread if you, fentanyl democratizes all kinds of dope trafficking right it makes it so much easier um for all kinds of folks to be kingpins right. like, you know people who have no business in the big time dope business they're they're they're, they're just lost souls and they're selling, uh, you know, because they can, they can get access to it, and then then they get caught, and then they spend, then they face big time prison right. sentences. Well, that's too. where it gets yeah. crazy. Like one of my favorite stories in the book, and the book, of course, the new book is called "The Least of Us: True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth," and uh, and it's amazing. And one of my favorite stories mm-hmm. is your story of this kid who called himself Fent God. Yeah, the Oxy God. I thought it was, it wasn't, it was an Oxygod, that kid? I thought it was Fentgod. Okay, yeah, tell us the story no, no, of Oxygod. No. Oxygod. Forgive me. That's why a guy named Wyatt Pasek, a kid named Wyatt Pasek, who um, kind of began his drug dealing early in uh, life, kind of got a, dropped out of high school, went to one of the great high schools in California, Newport, um, Newport High School, Newport Beach. I mean, one of really top-notch schools. But he got involved in dope. And anyway, at, at a certain point, he's seeing on the dark web pills, marketed with fentanyl in them um, and selling for some amount of money. And he figures, I can get a slice of that market. He buys a pill press. He gets online and buys a quarter kilo, I think it was, of fentanyl from a company. They send it to him in a puzzle box in like the slowest mail possible. So it blends in with every other of the millions of packages coming into the U.S. every day. He gets it and he starts up a business in which uh, very quickly he's making, you know, the, the economics of fentanyl are astounding, right? And he's making $25,000 a day uh, printing. He's got two guys. He's paying them huge amounts of money. They're happy. They're selling colossal quantities eventually within a, all this within an 18, what was it, 18 months or something like that. And online he's known as, he calls himself Oxygod. He puts up on Instagram all these pictures of him it's almost like he got addicted to cash right like every picture is of him you know with cash everywhere and and bathing in a bathtub of cash and maseratis and all that whatever sports sports cars he's got you know and uh, of course it lasts about again i don't think it lasted 18 months um but he was making colossal amounts of money virtually overnight and of course, he's partying at strip clubs. He's in, getting into strip clubs he's too young to really get into. Um, you know, he's got all these women with all around him, and it's just like this one big blowout for this guy. And then he's caught. And when I spoke with him over the phone, he was doing his 17 years in prison. I think he was 20, 
two at the time, but it was the quantities that he was able to get his hands on that made turned him into a kingpin. He didn't need any cartels. He didn't need to be part of the Sinaloa drug cartel to get that quantity. He could just get it from the, the web at that point. And, uh, um, and, and so his story was kind of like a stand-in. There are many others in the book, but there's some others in the book. But, but the idea was if you just have one guy uh, who's got, uh, uh, you know, kind of a business acumen that's, uh, you know, pretty sharp, and, and he, he figures it out, and pretty soon he's, he's trafficking in, in king-sized quantities, kingpin-sized quantities, and then, of course, when he's caught, now he's doing his, his he's going to get at least 40. And of, and, of course, the damage he does to the world, to his community, and the fact that he was, and you also compared fentanyl with the housing bubble, right? Right. If you think about the housing bubble, the housing bubble was the proliferation of, of um, loans to people who had no business buying a house. They didn't have the money for it. They didn't have a secure enough job, et cetera. They didn't have the savings for it. And yet there were all these people being offered. There was all this capital sloshing around the financial markets, just aching to lend that money to uh, a janitor, you know, or a security guard or a stripper, famously, as you saw in the, in the, uh, the big short, if you saw that movie, sure. you know, um, None of these people had any business owning a home because they just did not have any kind of secure enough income to allow them to own more than just the smallest little condo, maybe. Right. You know? And so now they're buying two, three houses. Well, the same was true of fentanyl. The, 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 the supplies of it were just so um, uh, colossal. And, and, um, and it just sopped up everybody in the mix. Methamphetamine was exactly the same way, by the way. I mean, people were selling methamphetamine who had no business selling it in, in, in enormous quantities. Because it was so cheap, so right? This, I'm sorry? Because it's so cheap. That's the thing. The quantities meant that it was so cheap and it was everywhere. You, you know, I talked with one guy who, who had gone to prison for actually manufacturing meth, what, 20 years before, um, he gets out, stays clean, and get out, out of the business for many years, and then gets back into it for a variety of reasons. And, and, and he went to prison. He was manufacturing like an ounce, right, like a few grams at a time. It was a like small timer. He gets out, and he finds that he can, you told me, I could find three, four, five sources anywhere, you know, uh, within a 10-mile radius. There were three, four, five sources who could sell me 20 pounds any day of the week. But that's the thing. That's what begins to happen. Everybody gets all wrapped up in it. Everybody and people who have no business, you know, they just don't know how to run a drug business. They're not very good at it or they're they may be good initially. And then the dope or the money or both Fucks goes to their heads and right. they become very sloppy. And 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 I heard this story over and over and over. And it's just an entire a function of supply. All the story. This is the other thing that I changed on on very uh, quick well not quickly but it absolutely worked uh, uh, to change my mind and that was when i was in mexico i believed the whole idea of there being a, a, a kind of like demand pushing everything right yeah i do not believe that anymore i do not i'm sorry it, it doesn't make any sense it doesn't fit the facts uh the facts are the supply creates demand 
and you're seeing it with meth, you're seeing it with fentanyl, absolutely. And, you know, if you're using cocaine and there's so much supply around that they're putting fentanyl in the cocaine, pretty soon you become a fentanyl addict. That is not what you demanded. You know, it's just, it, 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 it and, and we did not have an opioid addiction problem slash heroin problem, the kind that we have today, before the doctors began prescribing colossal supplies of this crap. Right. So all of that, me has made me a believer in the idea that this all comes down to supply demand follows and then there's a very complicated inter interconnection between the two and it's hard to parse it all out but if you look at the stories they start they start with supply and supply the massive amounts of supply make it very difficult for people to recover successfully right you know and the slightest little mix up and you're back down into it, and then you're dead. You know, it's 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 the supply is the story. It's very much look. Think of, of major corporations, right? Major corporations who who deal in addictive legal substances, substances like sugar. You know, why why do you think the 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 the, the fast food industry um, um, and never changes its logos. Those logos never change. McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger, oh, they don't change. The reason is because they're, they're triggers. Yeah. They're, they're burned, triggers they're burned into our that. brain. You said something exactly. in that book about nuggets, chicken nuggets, just being fat and salt. And I was just like, uh, you know, the, the addiction of, of chicken nuggets and also the way you talk about social media addiction just like blew my mind that humans well, are, me, yeah, please. Exactly. To me, it's, it's all, it's all part of the same continuum at the far end. You find the Sinaloa drug cartel, but along the way down, I mean, you've got, before you get there, you get, yeah, you get Pepsi and Coke, you get Facebook, you get, uh, McDonald's, you get casinos, you get gambling, you get, um, uh, pornography, you get uh, video game on and on. There's a long, long list. And then way out at the end, there's, there's Chapo Guzman and his boys down in, in Sinaloa and all that. But, but they're all at work on the same plane of manipulating our brain chemistry to provoke us to spend money to buy something over and over and over based on a kind of a, 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 an uncontrollable impulse. Yeah, chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets. Think about chicken nuggets as kind of like crack. Yeah. Okay. So what is crack? Crack is, you know, there's a, there's a plant called the coca plant in, in, in the, the, the Andes and Colombia and Bolivia and so on. And you take that leaf and you chew it and you get mildly high. And I think it helps calm the, the appetite yeah. uh, as well. You know, it's a good appetite it, it suppressant. Yes. Your, yeah. It doesn't hit your brain very hard because it's a lot of fiber and, and other things in that leaf that slow the absorption of that stuff. Well, then they come up with an idea. Hey, let's take a bunch of those leaves and process them all into a powder known as cocaine. So we're taking away all that fiber. We're taking away that, and, and now it's just a powder, and it's going right, boom, very quickly to our brain, much more quickly than it did before. Well, then we take crack, and we bake crack with water and baking soda, and it becomes hard, and then we smoke it, and, it's an, it's a, a, and, we, and it just goes faster than ever right to our brain. Well, that's what fast food is. Fast food is you're taking nutritious stuff, stripping it of all its nutrients to make it easier for it or most many of its nutrients to make it easier for it to hit our brain to provoke us to buy more or to, or to associate with good feelings and yummy and i want more i can't stop eating well and chicken nuggets are just like the next step 
down. It's basically chicken clay is what they call it, which is a very unappetizing idea. <laughs> chicken clay made of, of, of fat and 60% fat and salt and kind of like meat product of whatever the hell it is. And then you dip, dip that in a, in a dip of sugar-based sugar based dip, and you've got the trifecta right there. You've got sugar, fat, and salt, all of which our bodies evolved to crave right. because we got so little of it as for the millions of years we were evolving as a species. And now we get it massively. We get more sugar and fat and salt in one serving of, of, of um uh, you know, of chicken nuggets at a Super Bowl party than 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 our ancestors millions of years ago would get in, in a, like a month or two. You know, and and so all of this is is kind of what we're dealing with as as uh, as well. We have all this stuff that's massively marketed, bombarding us. That's you know, and it's a, but the same idea. Now you make it easy for people to act on their impulse. So it's at every off ramp. It's in every Seven Eleven. It's in every you know here, there, everywhere. Just like it's the 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 traffickers have done with meth and fentanyl now, and made it so easy for you to find it. If you're in the dope world, you can find it pretty much anywhere. Just remove the friction to 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 use, and you have got an unbeatable business model. And and you're dealing with you know these horrible stories of uh, deprivation and depravity and, and obvious debauchery and tragedy. But there's also stories of hope in this book. Um, I don't know. The, the story of Will Pfefferman really stuck out to me, just you, with his fists like ham sandwiches. Um, what was your favorite yeah. hopeful story in there? I liked, uh, well, all of them. That's what I, I started. The book, the book could, I can safely say started with those stories. There were things that I wanted to write after I got done with Dreamland that I said, I want to write about stories of people who are doing their best to to repair community. Right. Um, hold on one second. Uh, I want to do my best to write about people who are doing yeah, – let me put it this way. I want to do my best – shit. I'm I want to write. Uh, I want to write stories about people who are doing their best to repair community. You know, in the smallest ways. I don't want to write about someone who's uh, saving the world. Some, you know, Mahatma Gandhi. I'm, no, I'm interested in people doing it in the smallest ways because we got into this whole problem because we wanted big, sexy, you know, silver bullet answers to all our problems. We wanted want to cure pain. What's the answer? pills for one pill for every human being. It's an insane idea. I wanted to write about people who are working in the smallest way, even though they know they're not saving the world in some virtuous way, they are nevertheless doing what really needs to be, to be done. So the story of bird, the guy in, in Muncie, yeah, yeah. who um, lived in a neighborhood that bounded by like these enormous transition transmission factories that, that were there for many, many years, and he grew up in this little neighborhood nearby and across the street from a community center. And then eventually, as the transmission factories began to lose jobs, and then eventually were clearly headed towards closing, the city leaders decided, we got to close these community centers because we don't have any budget. And so they closed the community center that was across the street from his house, even though he had, he had worked at one of these. And they think, okay, we're done. We're done. Okay, we're just like saving money here. And 
and we, they think it's closed except for that bird kept the key. I love that. You know, and yeah, that. me too. I, I love this guy's story. And he, he would go, they would, the kids in the neighborhood would come and he would open up the communities unbeknownst to city leaders. I'm quite sure he just, for several years, he became a community center, you know, unto himself in a sense. So you have these, the, all these folks coming and they, they, they want to play euchre. The older folks, he opens it up. They want to play basketball. He, opens, he fixes the toilet. He, uh, he barters for services. He mows the lawn, a very big lawn outside the community center. He, he helps this neighborhood weather the worst of the economic downturn. And then, of course, the opioid thing also beginning to, to hit. It, it becomes this way of getting the neighborhood through these very, very stressful times. And, and Bird is the guy who helps it happen. Nobody, you know, wrote about ever Bird, except for me, I think. Um, it's not like he gets, gets a lot of praise or, or uh, recognition or anything like that. He died several years ago before I met him. But, um, but to me, it, it felt like these were the kinds of stories. If you were faced with pernicious synthetic dope coming out of Mexico, and at the same time, uh, a legitimate legal um, uh, addictive substances bombarding us with marketing and constant offers, you know, uh, wherever we go, you know, big fat pornographic pictures of burgers oozing fat, like, like some kind of like, you know, uh, you know, kind of pornographic picture or sure. something like that. Just all of that, 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 it, that, that is the, de the defense that we have against all of that is returning locally, repairing those shredded community right. bonds, right. Re repairing those community, um, connections that we need which it's not just a good thing we need them right and, I mean, we, we and, won't and so make the it. stories exactly I, the stories in the book were really about that you know it was about how, how people who were just trying to repair community and not as a way of saying this is these are sam's five bullet points of what you need to do in your neighborhood i don't know your neighborhood i don't know you know i'm not from there what i was saying is it's more of an attitude looking out for each other better together rather than apart, um, uh, understanding that we're only as strong as the most vulnerable. We're only as strong as the least of us. Hence right. the title that comes right out of the Bible with Jesus saying that what you do for the least of my brethren, you do for me. Jesus understood that. Right. He understood what we needed, you know? Well, I think, and, I think um, it's amazing. And I love, I love the, the folk hero thing. And I love folk heroes in, in the path of, the biggest, you know, these destructive forces of nature um, before. Yeah. And I also think you should write about Dopey because we're the folkiest heroes you could ever come across. You really, you really <laughs> should do a little deep dive into the Dopey Nation. I think you'd be, you'd be very, very happy at what you found. But one of the things that I, I heard you, I, I think I, I, I read and I listened to you. Like when I wasn't reading the book, I was listening to it as I walked around. And I remember hearing you talk about social media that people are addicted to outrage. Yes, and outrage was necessary for our own, um, uh, our our survival. Really, was uh, let me put it this way: outrage was necessary for our own survival in a certain way. It was a way we had of correcting um, bad behavior on the part of others. Right? Somebody steps out of line, creates problems with the community, the outrage that we feel like you can't do that. And that, but in order to point out the outrage, 
you have to step forward too. You can't just do it anonymously. That's how it always worked in community in, 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 right. in, in communities where we're evolving. You can't do this. I'm saying this. I'm telling everybody this is a this is an error. This person needs to correct his behavior. Right. And you're and so, there. You're present in the outrage. You're playing exactly. a part. Where, you're accountable. Right. You're accountable. Right. That's the way it felt to me. Anyway, as time went on, of course, with social media, we can feel that same no noble feelings of outrage and virtuous. Oh, I'm so outraged. And I'm so angry at this person because clearly this person's a, a deplorable, you know, creep. Um, but we don't have to risk anything ourselves. We can do it anonymously. And so there's there's a definite addictive pr propensity when you don't have to risk anything yourself, but you can tell everybody else that they're wrong. Right. And you're seeing that on social media, and you're seeing absolutely on uh, cable TV news. And right? it's, oh, it's, I, I'm part of this tribe. That person's a, a degenerate. I'm the moral one, that kind of thing. It's the same super cheapness as fentanyl or meth. Or, or chicken nuggets. It's that same cheap, low-quality, fucking no-value shit. And it's it's also the same stuff that I, I think what it also has in common with that stuff is you do it mostly alone. Right. You know, and it's, again, it's community versus isolation, that kind of thing. You don't you don't have um, this ability to, uh, or, or you, you don't have the accountability that comes when showing your face. You know, we all have like pseudonyms and all that stuff on that stuff. So you can you can you can just shout out and insult people and and do all kinds of things that you would never do if they were sitting in front of you. Right. While you, while that. you eat ice cream and chicken nuggets and wait for the fentanyl guy to come over. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Sam, I, I can't hold think. On, hold on. One OK, sorry. I had to answer this one. Email. Sorry. About, I'm sorry. What were you going to say? I was just going to say it was it was so good to have you on the show, you know, like uh it was a long wait, but you really delivered the goods. And I really, really appreciate you coming on. <laughs> well, it's great to have you. I appreciate the questions. Very different from the kinds I usually get, um, I have to say. Um, but it's a, a, a so say hello to everybody in Dopey Nation for me. I hope they're all doing well. I hope they're all being positive, excited, energetic forces of, of uh, creativity and, and productivity in their communities. That's what we need. Well, uh, let me ask you this. You're in Nashville. When, when are you ever going to be in New York? I uh, don't know yet. Um, I'm, I mean, I was visiting pre-COVID. I was doing going to New York every, every you know, maybe twice a year or something like that. But if you're around, I'm, if I'm next time I'm there, I'll let you know. I'm happy to get together. Um, well, I would love that. I just that. don't know when that'll be. I work in actually my day job is one of the last great bastions of selling fat and salt which is on the Lower East Side of Manhattan at Katz's Deli. So if, if, you, yeah. if you come in, I'll hook you up with the greatest fat and salt <laughs> pornographic meat sandwich that you can get. Um, but uh, happy, to, happy to get it. That sounds like my cup of tea, actually. Sam, um, thank you. I, I have to say, like, your voice is so important in terms of what we're about, like you delivered so much really, really important information. And more important than the inf information is the morality. You know what I'm saying? Like the morality, like you can cover a story, but to infuse the value in the humanity is like what's important, you know, and what, what I know our community is going to get out of it. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that that's the case. It kind of, um, it was not something I wanted to write about, but as I got into it, 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 it kind of consumed me. And, and, um, and I think that's it, the fact that I've never used 
these drugs at all is maybe a, actually a benefit. It's it's like a different perspective on what's going on with the world. I think I don't know. Maybe not. But well, I think you're so getting you're getting it. you're getting all the perspectives, and you're running it through your brain, and you're able to right. to be a watcher, an observer, and and a reporter. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, if you uh, journalism is the greatest job on earth, if you follow the facts and let people take you where they want to take you, you can go to some amazing places. I think I've done that. You definitely have, and uh, and please be in touch. And thank you again. I really appreciate it. My, my pleasure, Dave. Good luck with the podcast, and thanks to uh, Dopey Nation for listening. Right on. All right, cool. You see, he thanked the Dopey Nation. I like that. That's always a nice touch. Yeah. So that was Sam Quinones, uh, award-winning author and journalist. Now, one of my favorite things that you do on the show, Aaron, is you rip apart these interviews. No, I do. So what did you think of the great Sam Quinones? I thought he was great. I mean, that was a really entertaining listen. He's he's so well well versed in his subject matter he's a really good speaker he knows his stuff and and he speaks about it with a lot of passion so as a listener it's exciting to listen to he is very passionate yeah it comes through it's funny he was also so into like it was i really loved his take on um on how heroin addicts go for this rebellion but Mm -hmm. then they get stuck into this conformity yeah i love the way he talked about it and, and as a, a heroin addict who was really interested in rebellion and got really mired down in conformity, I don't think I really thought about it. I mean, that certainly resonated with me when he said that. And I, I think one of the things that I had written down in my notes is that I always had this idea that like heroin gave me freedom from like my brain, from my thoughts, from other people. And like really it ended up being the thing that completely like locked me up. Do you know what I mean? Like kept me imprisoned. Well, know? it's like it's it's you're self medicating or we're we're self medicating, mm-hmm. and then ultimately we're not right. No, we're enslaved. It, totally. And he he spoke about that and just like the repetition and like how the, the weird sort of like monotony of addiction. Like everything is just driven toward getting the next fix so that you don't get sick. I also just love what a journalist does Mm -hmm. and how he obviously embraces being a journalist. And like, I also kind of like, like the idea of it. Like you travel around, you meet people, you get their story Mm -hmm. and then you, you, you put all these stories together to make a, a point. And like, I don't know, it's real old timey salt of the earth kind of storytelling. It's real narrative nonfiction. It's real journalism. And I, I mean, there was a lot that he talked about in terms of like how fentanyl first started entering the market and the way that it like the way that it's risen. I thought that that was really interesting. I had broad strokes sort of understanding of these things, but it was wild. The story that he told about the the young kid that ordered a pill press and then like ordered. And I got the name wrong. I called him Fent God, but he was Oxygod. I kept saying, no, I think it's Fent God. (laughs) Oxygod. That he ordered the the fentanyl and it came like through like a really like snail, like really the slowest snail mail in a jigsaw puzzle box. And of course, you know, I I tapped onto that because I've been doing a lot of jigsaw puzzles (laughs) lately. So I I don't know that that's just crazy. And you know, that idea of like, this young kid just making 25 grand a day off of this fentanyl business. And 
makes me think of Jay too. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, cause I talk to Jay all the time and he's like, he's work and Jay was the fentanyl dealer from two episodes ago. And I wanted so badly for Sam Quinones to be in February cause I would have called it fentanyl February on Dopey. Right. Yeah. That would have been a thing. It would have. We think we can do MDMA March. Do you have any good, (laughs) do you have any good MDMA stories? Not really. I have a couple, but I'm not gonna, I don't, I, I, I had an MDMA story that just toppled my whole life, really. Really? It was like I had stopped using... It was before I became a real bad heroin addict. Mm-hmm. I, I was just... I had, it was my first run with heroin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I had stopped. And my friends Todd and Jeremy left New York because they had a habit. And I was producing uh, TV. And I was like, I have a good job. And I stopped right. doing heroin and they left town. And uh, another friend of mine, you know, I think I've told this story on the show, but another friend of mine uh, came over with his girlfriend and another girl and they were going to go to a rave and they brought me with them and I wound up taking ecstasy with mm-hmm. them and uh, it tr- and I hooked up with the other girl mm-hmm. and uh, and she was a heroin addict. Oh. And that was it. That was it. That was it. It was on. And she broke my favorite guitar. I had this semi-hollow body guitar, like the guitar I'd always dreamed of, Mm -hmm. and she broke it. How'd she break it? She, like, stepped on it or fell on it or something. And she asked me to move in. And and she came with me to the Howard Stern show. When I went on the Howard Stern show, it was her. That was her. Yes. Wow. And that's my MDMA March story. It's not much. My MDMA stories just are, like, typical. I mean, there's nothing, like, that stands out about them. I, you know. I love the idea of uh, MDMA in therapy. A I think lot. I could use. I think I could use some MDMA. I'm sure therapy. that's one of the things that they use to like, like, like microdose people, right? Do they? I am not an expert. I have no idea. I've read. This is what I've read about. I've read about ketamine for depression. Yes. I've read about ayahuasca for depression and trauma. trauma. I've read about microdosing psilocybin. I always say psilocybin, but psilocybin. psilocybin uh, for depression. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm sure ecstasy's in there somewhere, yeah. but they call it MDMA treatment. I mean, I'm sure this is also based on what it was cut with, but like, I always felt so terrible the day after ecstasy. I, one of the reasons we call dopey dopey is because we'd always be like, we love ecstasy to be really dopey. Right. Like, cause you want, I always like ecstasy with a lot of heroin in it. Right. Like the good dopey ecstasy. Right. You always feel bad. What they would say is that you always felt bad the next day because of serotonin depletion. Right. But I don't know about any of that stuff. I don't know if that, I think it's also just because you probably stayed up all night and. Well, you were on drugs. You yeah. stayed up all night. But I'm sure you're, I'm sure there was serotonin depletion also. <laughs> Anything else on Mr. Quinones? Um, I thought like one of the, another note that I had was again about like the fentanyl dealers and like how, and both of you were talking about this, that like it's everywhere because it's like if someone dies, it's an advertisement. I like wrote down that. And and the idea that like if you're I don't know if this is true. This is where what tripped me up a little bit, because I think I think he said that everybody has to put fentanyl in their cocaine and heroin, because if they don't, they're going to lose their customers. But I would argue this. I know I've, ta- I've this is the feeling I get for myself that if I were using today that I don't know that I would like I think the fentanyl high is slightly different from what I've heard than heroin and that there are people who prefer a heroin high to fentanyl I'm not talking about like taking it up to that line of like you know pushing it as far as you can go I just mean in terms of 
um, the actual body high that it gives you. I think that's very interesting. I think that's a very interesting point because like I never knew anything about fentanyl. Right. Like, I, I never did fentanyl, mm -hmm. but I do remember that when I was in rehab, one of the great war stories that would always circle around would be somebody who stole a bunch of fentanyl, fentanyl. lollipops mm -hmm. or, or Chris used to get the analgesic uh, patches and, mm -hmm. and eat them. And, uh, and everyone talked about their potency recently, like Jay talked about the fentanyl high and Ryan Leone talked about the fentanyl mm -hmm. high and both of them said it didn't have the same euphoria, right? Like they said it was like crack is to Coke as fentanyl is to heroin in a way. But mm -hmm. I mean, I, I didn't get anything out of crack. How would you rate crack to cocaine? I mean, I didn't really like either, but I found crack to be much more addictive for me. I mean, part of it was the headspace I was in. Crack felt like, I felt like my chest was going to explode or my head was going to explode, but I couldn't stop doing it. But what about the, like when people talked about that? I didn't have the that, euphoria with crack. Did you have it with Coke? Sometimes. I never had, I mean. A little bit. I was not like, it just wasn't my thing. Yeah. But like, definitely. I you smoked that, a ton of crack too. I smoked a lot. I mean, over just that one relapse though, really. It was that one relapse that I started, I had a boyfriend, he was smoking crack, so I added crack to the mix, and then it just became, it was just on, and I was just, I smoked crack, as we've talked about on the show, in an airplane bathroom. I smoked crack all over the place, and, and it made me even crazier. I mean, I was hallucinating, I wanted to jump off the roof of my building, I was in bad, bad shape. But I, but I always would think to myself in the rehabs when I heard about fentanyl, like I'd kind of file it in my head. It was mm -hmm. like, oh, I should try that fentanyl. Oh, I didn't really get to where I want to go because I never had that fentanyl. Right. And, and when you hear about the high not being as good, mm -hmm. but it being so much stronger, like nobody shoots fentanyl, they smoke it. Right. I don't know. I think it's interesting. I, it is interesting. I just think like I, I, I take it back to the idea. And I think he brought this up at the beginning when he talked about, you know, we used to differentiate between an opiate and an opioid because an opioid is synthetic. And now the now the terms are used interchangeably. Right. He talked about that with this. And fentanyl is an opioid is an opioid. And I think that in my experience of taking opioids in the past, they gave me a slightly different high than heroin. Now I understand you can get heroin that's like cut and terrible and whatever, but when I had good heroin, the high was far better than taking oxys. Uh, yeah, I mean it just wasn't the same thing. I never took oxys either. Well, I didn't take oxys either. But I, I mean, questions that I wanted to ask him, like, what's really the difference between fentanyl and oxy? Like I get, it's a different molecule or whatever. It does. I think it leaves the body much faster, which is, I think he me, he yes. mentioned right yes. about like that's why it's good for surgery right. because you go in and out, you go in quickly and out quickly. It leaves right. your body really quickly, which is why people addicted to fentanyl are so fucked because they can need you imagine? so much over and over and over. Yeah. Right. And then the other thing I wish I had asked him is like the urban legend of weed that has fentanyl in it. Well, I don't know that that's an urban legend because they they're in Connecticut in the fall. There was there was weed that had been sprayed like they had they had um, uh, dissolved fentanyl and made like a, a liquid spray. And Who sprayed, does that? I don't fucking know. But kids died. Is that real? I mean, I'll fact check myself right now, yeah, but you, it was on the it was on you, the news. <laughs> you get to fact checking. I just want to say that's the 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 most anti stoner shit ever to spray bud with with 
dusted fentanyl. Although I'm sure lots of people liked smoking uh, joints with dust in them, like PCP, whatever. Anyway, here we go. I'm going to read an email. Okay. You ready? Hey, Dave, can you pay attention and fact check at the same time? Or should I wait? Uh, I, let me just, I have it right here. Okay. Uh, they don't really know. <laughs> They're saying that, that the rumor is unsubstantiated and not, and it, they also say it's like not a financially sound prospect. Yeah, it sounds like bullshit to yeah. me. Um, anyway, I'm going to read an email. Hey, Dave, longtime listener, uh, first time writer. Wanted to share a story about my grandma who I don't think would have liked the show <laughs> because she was so embarrassed to be a junkie, but she oh. did do some crazy shit. And I think you and other listeners would like to hear when I was like seven, I noticed a big change in her. She was sleeping all the time. Whenever I visited her anyway, five years later, she goes fucking missing. Well, turns out she had gone to rehab for Oxy, which no one in my family except her husband knew she was doing. But it shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone, though, because everyone in my family except my dad is either a junkie or was seriously using at some point. Anyway, she died in rehab, so we never found out much more about it for a while. But then her husband told me, this is great. Sorry. this is I love this email. Anyway, she died in re I'm sorry about your grandma. Anyway, she died in rehab, so we never found out much more about it for a while. But then her husband told me what she had done, and it was the wildest shit. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I'll leave enough out so that this can't be traced back to me, her, her husband, but try to give enough detail that it's still interesting. This was back in the days when Oxy was running wild, and there were a lot of doctors running pill mills. Well, she was a doctor, too, and she set up a pill mill just for herself, Fake office, fake secretary, fake patient who got the scripts and gave them back to her. Probably the most elaborate scheme anyone has ever gone through to get pills without selling any. I could have had an, had an inheritance if she'd just been a little more entrepreneurial. It's great. It's kind of genius. It's great. <laughs> anyway, thanks for the show. It means a lot of me as I stay away from drugs. I first listened to Do I first listened to Dopey after you were on NPR, and after a couple of episodes hearing the dumb shit people were doing, I realized I was also doing some dumb shit and drinking way too much, and I think I stopped when it was still pretty easy to stop. You probably saved my ass because literally my grandma and my grandpa both died of drugs. My uncle is God knows where doing junky shit. My auntie is a junkie. My other aunt is sober after 30 odd years of using my other uncle died driving drunk and luckily my mom stopped using before i was born best eddie wow that's an amazing email this almost made me cry at what point that that listening to dopey like gave him the pause to be like wait i'm starting to go down this road and i'm not gonna fucking go down that road i almost cried because he could have, have had an inheritance oh. and, 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 and he <laughs> lost it because his grandma wasn't entrepreneurial <laughs> eddie this is a great email dopey nation you should pay attention because this was a fucking great email such a great that was such a great email because he didn't wander he was clear he said fucking in the email yeah that's that's good it's great yes so send me your address. You just want a pair of socks. Congratulations, Eddie. Um, let's hear another one. You ready? I have yep. another note. I think this was from Instagram or something. Um, I wanted to reach out and say what a fan I am and how much I enjoy the podcast. 
I am not an addict and I've never touched drugs simply because I grew up with a father who was an alcoholic and recovering drug addict and a horrible alcoholic stepmother. I saw enough to keep me away from everything, probably too much for a kid to see. I listen to the podcast and somehow relate to the stories and feel like I've found my people. No one truly understand what I saw and lived through, but your podcast makes me feel like I'm not alone. I've been a listener since the beginning. R.I.P. Chris, Toodles, your dedication to the show shines through. Keep making a great podcast. And I don't know who wrote it, but thank you. That's another great message or email. That is a great message. Listen, I was going to put this thing on the show mm-hmm. behind the dope, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to. All right. It's on Patreon. Behind the dope is on Patreon. Yes. There's one with Don, who's just fucking awesome. There's one with Emily uh, Sullivan, now she's Emily St. Martin. Mm-hmm. Awesome. There's an Aaron Carr behind the dope coming up. <laughs> There's a recent Ask Aaron sex uh, only fans <laughs> available. Do you have a quick Ask Aaron you want to do? Uh, I can pull one up, yeah. All right. Oh, shit. I forgot to talk about Dopey merchandise. It's available at dopeypodcast.com. We're in partnership with a brilliant printing outfit out of Cincinnati, Ohio called SRO Prints. The new praying mantis smoking the joint on the mushroom. Classic dopey wear. The king baby dopey is finally out. Buy dopey merch. I have dopey snapbacks. I have a few more big bird beanies. I've got the fucking oive shit. Just direct message me. I will ship them to you. And um, Aaron, you got to ask Aaron? I do. Yeah. You don't sound very enthusiastic. (laughs) I am enthusiastic. I just started changing my mind about what I was going to read. Okay. Are you ready? It's amazing that you're wearing headphones and yet you're still sitting so far I away know, from I'm the sorry. mic. I know. I'm sorry. Okay, here. I'm here. The whole point of the headphones is it's to... so no- I can hear myself. And you I sit know, closer to the mic. But I feel like I'm going to like make out with the mic. But that's fine. <laughs> Eat right. the mic. All right. Here we go. Are you ready? I'm, I'm ready. My family is using a fake diagnosis to cover up a family member's bad behavior. My uncle has always been volatile, hard to be around. I think it's pronounced volatile. Is it? No. Continue. <laughs> Makes aggressive sexual comments to young girls in the family, Ugh. things like that. He's older now in his 60s, but my mom, his sister, and my aunt, his wife, make excuses for his quote-unquote quirks despite family gatherings being monstrous. He and my mother both inherited houses from family, so he's lived down the street from me my whole childhood. Thankfully, they don't have kids. My mom's siblings all live close by, so my little cousins and siblings all still see him daily, and as the oldest with my own place, I frequently get calls from my little sisters, age 13 and 16, about him walking in on them in the bathroom, calling them names, making sexual comments to them. Our parents are still together, and usually my sisters tell me what our uncle said or did, so I'll tell our dad. They're embarrassed, but dad always handles it and sides with them and make sure mom and my aunt know. My sisters are getting better about telling our dad with my support. This is causing serious strains in my parents' relationship. My mom is siding with my uncle for years and laughing off his jokes and pranks. Following a 13-year-old girl into a small bathroom isn't a prank. My uncle has, to my knowledge, always been on the knife edge of outright dangerous. He verbally abuses and harasses the kids and women in the family, but as far as I know, he's never taken it to a physical place, although there have been unusual and grooming behaviors in the past. Over the holidays, my uncle made a huge scene that involved calling one of my little cousins terrible names and my dad kicked him out. Nobody has spoken to him other than my mom and his wife for months. Mom and aunt called a family meeting together last week to tell us he's got Alzheimer's and can't help the things he says. And as a family, we all need to pull together and help out to forgive him because he quote unquote can't help it. 
They were adamant that a doctor had confirmed the diagnosis. I'm a nursing student, and they asked me to pick up his medication on the drive home today. Something about this entire story smelled funny from the start, and I was right. This medication would never be given to an Alzheimer's patient. It's contraindicated at the highest level, and its primary use is as an antipsychotic. I asked the pharmacy if they made a mistake, and they said they didn't. I handed the medication over and asked my aunt if she was positive. The doctor said Alzheimer's, and she said she was positive, so I let it drop. I can tell she and my mom are lying, so we'll let him back into our lives. I don't need to know his current diagnosis and don't want to stigmatize him finally getting help or receiving treatment, but I don't want them lying to the younger girls in the family, normalizing and excusing away the terrible things he says, following them into the bathroom, the creepy behaviors and outbursts. What do I do? How do I handle this and keep my sisters safe? I've looked into it, and there's not a lot I can do as far as involving authorities. That's terrible. It's awful. But he's not a drug addict. He's just got problems. He's just mentally not well. He's got SMI, severe mental illness. Yes. So what do you do? I mean, I, you, you keep your kids away from him. Well, sh- this person doesn't have kids, but I, I would just keep setting that boundary. I mean, even if... Okay. Whose kids? It seems a little convoluted to me. Whose kids is it? Because it was it's, a long yeah, email. Sorry. That, it's like, what the <laughs> fuck? I don't even know what I heard. So this, this is a person who's an adult who has younger sisters ages 13 and 15 this young woman's in nursing school lives outside of the house but the uncle has still had a lot of contact there and, and does it's her things, sisters her sisters and but she can't get the uncle out of her parents house no it's going to be up to her parents but i would be that broken record and squeaky wheel of making my opinion known to my parents if i thought there was somebody dangerous around somebody i cared about I would do what I could to keep that person away. And, you know, hopefully whatever his diagnosis is, whether it's fake or not, I mean, I don't I don't know enough about <laughs> Alzheimer's protocol to know. I do know that people with forms of dementia can act out in scary ways, um, but it sounds like this person was like this for a long time. Uh, the only thing that you can really do is is control how much contact you have with the uncle. Um, and continually encourage your father to set that boundary of not letting him back in the house. Right. We had a family friend of our family mm-hmm. who I, who I, who was very close friends of the family, mm-hmm. right. To the, to the tune of, I called him uncle. Right. right. And, uh, I used to stay in his apartment in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and he would frequently go on trips to Thailand and he was a principal in a school and I found a book in his bed on how to pop cherries of boys. Then also on his computer, he had pictures of of boys' penises. And then a boy called me while I was there with a Thai Thai accent Mm -hmm. and looking for him. And I had to tell him he was was not around. But like, I told my parents and uh, my parents were like, no, no, no. And uh, and like, I don't think he ever molested me. But obviously, he's like, fucking, he did some bad shit out there. Wait, so he just went on doing this? Doing what? Like, whatever he was doing. Nobody did anything. I quickly became addicted to heroin on an unrelated situation. (laughs) Well, hold on, but what should my dad have done? Well. I was was in my 20s. I was living, I was living in his house. No, no, I was living in his house while he was in Thailand. I see. But my point is that these kinds of situations like exist around a lot of different yeah. families. Um, 
I don't remember ever getting molested, but Linda thinks I've forgotten getting molested. She thinks that's why I'm a heroin addict. I think that, but there's nothing more importantly for this Ask Aaron, yes. there's nothing that this woman can do except what you said. Yeah. Because she can't kick this guy out of her parents' house. She can she can't do anything except maybe tell her sisters to stay away from him. Yeah. But, and and set her own boundaries about being around him. She what do you think about that. my story? I'm horrified. What about? Just the whole thing. I mean, that's like, that's really scary. <laughs> I mean, I, it doesn't surprise Not me. Not to I mention he was a principal for 30 years in the New uh, York City public school system. God. What do you think about that? I, My dad's again, gonna get pissed at me for talking about this. I know, I know. I'm we, sorry, Alan. We have this to bring this out. It's a messed up story. Yeah, it's fucked up. I didn't say any names. No. But serious business. Is this person still alive? No. Okay. No. And I loved him too. I mean, that's the, see, this is the complicated thing about a lot I of love this guy. abusers. When he'd right? come to the door, he'd ring the doorbell. I open the door, he'd say, good evening. <laughs> <laughs> Which comes up <laughs> even creepier I know, now. I know. Arr. Oh, boy. Anyway, is there anything else you want to say before we go? Anything else, any more advice you want to give? Uh, no. I mean, I think that we gave all the advice on that that we could. Just um, to, to set your boundaries and, and uh if your sisters come to you with stuff, be very vocal with it, with everybody in the family. Yes. And let me say something else totally unrelated. Mm -hmm. If you're out there in the Dopey Nation and you think you'd be a really good guest on Dopey, you know what would be really great? If you sent in a short, super Dopey story instead of asking to be a guest. Because if you sent in a super fucking Dopey story, I would get the content, the show would get the story and the the audience would be like, oh, I would love to hear, hear more. I'd love to hear that guy on Dopey. That's what This American Life and the Moth used to do, right? Like, I, I, I feel like that's what they used to do. Like if you had a pitch for like a moth for their radio hour, you could call and like in 90 seconds, like give an abbreviated version of your story. That is, so yeah. So fucking if you want to be a Dopey guest and you think you'll fucking set the world on fire, which I believe you could send me a short Dopey story, make it three to five minutes make it dopey, make it funny. And then the world can be your oyster like, like other past dopey guests. Right? Yes. I mean, you, Aaron wrote a big book. She sent me a copy. I did. She helped me with dopey, with dopey day last summer. I don't even think I asked to come on your show. I just at, wanted to send you a book. Cause we, I was supposed to come on here like a long time ago. The point is we, we, we need voicemails. Yes. It's not anything else besides we need voicemails. Also, um, thank you for listening. Also, you know what's coming? Just hold on to your chair. Fucking DopeyCon 3. Oh, have you set a date? No. Oh. Nothing. And you know who's <laughs> going to be organ? Don't tell Ray, but Ray Brown is going to be organizing DopeyCon 3, even though he refuses <laughs> to organize it. That will be the return of Ray, I think. Okay. DopeyCon 3. But in New York? In New York. Okay, good. I think. Why not? It's yes. springtime. And Ray isn't probably going to be there. But and he's definitely not going to organize it. <laughs> but I'll talk to him about it. Ray misses you guys. He sends you his best. Aaron, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Did you have a good time? I did. I always have a good time here. S yes, as opposed to where? Not in life. <laughs> you don't. You have a good time here, but not always in not life. Not always in life. All right. Well, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious, and it's just gotten me through some really hard times, and 
though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, I really like Dave's song, and I'm going to do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. It's just on my phone. And, uh, sorry about the banjo. This thing's hard to keep in tune. <clears throat> Get some honey in my pockets and I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood I wanna be good so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had I wanna take a ride up in the sky Watch as airplanes just pass me by And I wanna see a Learjet liner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive I wanna be good so bad I wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had in my burned out basement listening to the dopey show Home friends I had her on this little radio I keep checking on my pulse because it feels like I might die But the thought straightening up sounds so much better when you're high And I wanna be good so bad I wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Well, I hope y'all hear this Makes it through the, uh Big inbox of emails. Feel free to play a clip on the show if you want. If not, I know it kind of sucks. All right, uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, y'all.